0: sort of building process that's going to come the attacks of the enemy. He's going to, they're going to want to bring about problems and stuff like that. And so, thus my teaching through the book of Nehemiah, to see this man who had this building process and, and was leading the the, the the Jewish people into this place of rebuilding the wall. And, 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 uh, and you know, even regardless of the text, but I love... And we'll get to Nehemiah 417 that says, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. So they're building and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're working and working and they got their sword, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. And uh, man, what a great picture because they're fighting and for us it'd be a spiritual battle, you know, we'll, we'll be working over here, but man, our weapon is prayer and we're praying and we're praying God give us wisdom. And so that brings us to the book of Nehemiah. And so as we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you. For this time tonight, Lord God. We thank you for just the opportunities that you're giving us as a church, Lord, to expand the ministry, Lord, to reach more people uh with the gospel, with, with the good news. And so we pray, Lord, for wisdom and the decisions that the leadership needs to make, Lord, towards this uh this end, Lord. But uh we thank you, Lord, that you're in control and you open doors that no man can open. You shut doors that no man can open, Lord. So whatever it is, we, we just wait on you, Lord, and just pray that your will would be done in that situation. And so, Father, now as we come to your word tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would bless our study time together, that you'd give us understanding, application, Lord, into our lives. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray you'd bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Nehemiah, it's about 445 B.C., and he gets the authority to rebuild, really, the cities and the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I know by just jumping into Nehemiah, some of you may be going, okay, how does all this fit in? What's going on? All of a sudden, you need walls built up? What's up with that? Well, let me give you kind of a quick overview to get up to Nehemiah so we know what's happening. We know... I'll go back to about 1500 B.C., okay? So, I've got just a few years to, to go through. But, but uh, we know, Israel became a nation that they, they, in 1500 B.C. They entered into Egypt as a family. The Exodus is, Exodus, they left Egypt <laughs> as a nation. Exodus? Exodus. Anyway, they left. And so, um, we know then that Moses, after they left, you know, they, they, they sent in 12 spies to check out the Promised Land. All but two of them came back, you know, scared to death saying, oh, there's giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb, full of faith, and man, let's go for it. Let's, 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 let's take what the Lord has given to us. But the children of Israel were afraid. And because of that, the the parents, you know, wandered in the wildernesses for, wilderness for 38 years. Yeah, the Lord provided for them, but eventually they died there in the wilderness, never entering into the promised land. Now, their children did, along with Joshua and Caleb. But remember, Moses, though, didn't enter the promised land because why he misrepresented the Lord, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it like the Lord said. And so he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Now, that was about 1450 B.C. when they started the conquest of the promised land with Joshua Well, as they took possession of the land God gave them, eventually God appointed judges over Israel. And yet these judges they flip flap flip flop flip flop back they went back and forth for a while between good and evil, which then brings us to Saul being appointed as their first king. Oh, we want a king like the other nations have. And so in 1040 B.C. they got Saul. And that eventually led to David. And you all know the story about David and how he, he was anointed. And he ends up capturing Jerusalem from the Jebusites at around 1003 B.C. Then his son Solomon had the opportunity later to build the temple, the, the famous first temple that was dedicated in about 917 B.C. Now we're getting a little closer to Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah is 445 B.C., so about you know 500 years away. Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam and a guy by the name of Jeroboam have a civil war against each other. That divides the the, the city uh, into Israel in the north and and Judah in the south. 1 Kings 14.30 says, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And that's the time of the divided kingdom. Now, what's often overlooked is that Jeroboam to the north was an idol worshiper. I mean, he, he, you know... Their correct form of worship in the north was idol worshiping. So, if you were a Levi, or if you were a faithful worshiper of God and of the you know of the Torah, then you would go down south to Judah. Now, if you were in Judah, you didn't want to worship the Lord God, then you would run up north, you know, to the idols. Now, what happened during that time is that they began to migrate with whoever they wanted to worship. And the reason I bring that up is because when when the northern kingdom ultimately does fall. There's not ten lost tribes, as some people like to say, you know. The, the tribal identities, they commingled. And the scripture makes it very clear in many passages, nevertheless, you still have people who, who want to make something out of nothing. Oh, they're from the lost tribe of the north. No, they're not lost, you know. They're the secret of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, in any case, the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse, and about 722 BC, God uses the Assyrians to bring judgment upon them, The northern tribes are now exiled. We then move to the 6th century and the southern kingdom of Judah. Man, they've had their ups and downs. Every once in a while, there's a king that does pretty well, but there's a bunch that does pretty badly. And eventually it gets so bad that God decides to judge the southern kingdom. A young general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar defeats a man named Pharaoh Necho of Egypt in one of the famous battles of the ancient world called the Battle of Carchemish. And so on his way home... Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. But during the siege, he finds out that his fathers died, which then makes him the king of Babylon. So he completes the siege, then leaves Jehoiakim uh, as a vassal king or puppet king. This begins a period of time called the servitude of the nations. Because the Jews, they're still in Jerusalem, but now they're under the servitude of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar takes about 10,000 captive, including Daniel and his three friends as hostages, to keep uh, the loyalty of that king and for some other reason. But, but Nebuchadnezzar then returns home as a young king to take leadership of Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim, the, the puppet king, is left in Jerusalem, but these false prophets keep telling him, Hey, God's on our side. Let's rebel. Man, we'll beat Nebuchadnezzar and his goonies. You know, let's go for it. Well, all the while, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going... Don't do it, don't do it. I mean, this is the hand of God. If you rebel, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. What you might imagine, they don't listen. They finally do rebel, and this paves the way for Nebuchadnezzar to siege Jerusalem a second time. So he replaces Jehoiakim with a man named Zedekiah. Many are deported to Babylon, including Ezekiel at that time. Some time passes, and Zedekiah falls into the same trap as as Jehoiakim. Some false prophets feed his ego as well, and decides he wants to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah says, don't do it, don't do it. God will destroy Jerusalem if you do. Well, they do it. And in 587, Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough, and goes in for the third siege, in which Jerusalem is destroyed, and so is the temple, and then he takes them all captive. Now This starts what the period known as the desolation of Jerusalem. First stage was the the servitude of the nations, and now the third stage starts the desolation of the city of Jerusalem. Well, now we're getting a little closer to Nehemiah. Don't, Don't lose it here, we're almost there. 539 B.C., a man named Cyrus comes on the scene. And he has, a consolidated, he has consolidated his empire, he's attacked his father-in-law, and to make a long story short, he is now the ruler of the Persian Empire. Well, he conquers Babylon. But then he discovers that there's a letter written to him about him in an ancient Hebrew text, specifically calling out him out by name and outlining his career, telling him to let the children of Israel go back to rebuild their temple. Isaiah 44:28. we read, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Imagine hearing that, knowing nothing about the Jewish people, and said, look, your name's in this book right here, and it says what you're going to do. Whoa, can't believe that. So he gets freaked out and goes, wow, that, you know, I'm impressed, and so impressed that he does just that. He gives the Jewish people the financial incentives to go back. Well, about 539 BC, Cyrus authorizes the Jewish slaves in Babylon that he has conquered to go back and rebuild their temple. And this starts the rebuilding of the temple, the so-called second temple, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. But they don't get very far because they keep getting harassed by a lot of their enemies because they're not really allowed to build that wall around the temple and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, defend themselves. So they don't have the authority under the Persian Empire to build a state. So they're discouraged by the opposition from the people who had settled in the land during captivity. They're also discouraged by the immensity of the task. And so the Jews soon abandoned their work of building the temple with only the foundation of the temple rebuilt. Well, about 16 years later, when all the people had pretty much settled down and were content just to dwell in their own homes, God raises up two men, Haggai and Zechariah who's challenged the people in the way of life and pointed out, man, how could you live in your home and have this so nice and you're neglecting the house of the Lord, the things of God? So they were the people were inspired by his ministry, the ministry of these two men, and the work on the temple was restarted. Only this time it was completed some 20 years after the first group had returned from captivity. Sixty more years passed by and then more of the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra himself in the year 458 BC. We're getting close. Ezra was a priest who traced his ancestry back to Aaron. Now, he set out to uh, reestablish the moral and the spiritual life of the people who for so long just lived in this deplorable state. And so Ezra started this task with a great deal of discouragement from other people because there, were, there was still so much left to do. On top of that, again, the people surrounding them, you know, they were constantly challenging them and constantly coming against them. Now, this Persian king who had sent them back had no power really to send in reinforcements so that 90 years after the first Jews returned to Babylon, the temple was complete, uh, but the walls of Jerusalem still remained desolate. And because of that, the people of God lived in affliction and sane. Now, now this time, we now get introduced to Nehemiah. That was out for a quick survey of the Old Testament from Moses to Nehemiah. Who is Nehemiah? Well, according to verse 11... He's a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Now, what does that mean? Well, a cupbearer, you know, means that, you know, that each meal you'd personally taste the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poison. If it was, then you'd lose your job. Now, they would also personally taste the food, you know, and, and because of that position, you had a close access to the king pretty much 24-7. Now, it wasn't just a position of eating food, but it was a position of influencing the king. Because of that close proximity, the cupbearer would be a confidant to the king, even a counselor to the king. So if you wanted to get word to the king, make friends with the cupbearer and say, hey, next time you're with the king, would you tell him this or ask him that? And this keeps going in and out. Let me check this. Okay. So here was Nehemiah, this great uh, position of importance, living literally in the very lap of luxury He had it made in the shade, but all that was about to change. Let me say this. The opening chapter of this book gives us the account of Nehemiah's, his preparation, his call, his purpose, as he sets out to complete the task that God has called him to do. And what a task that will be. As I said already, the wall surrounding Jerusalem was in shambles. The stones that made up this wall would stretch, you know, around a mile and a half to two and a half miles long. They've been knocked down. They've been rolled down into the steep valleys, you know, that surrounded Jerusalem. Now, back then they didn't have backhoes and cranes and, and, you know, tractors. You know, all they had was manpower. On top of that, man, it's been many, many years that have passed. And now what was left of the wall, man, it's all been grown over and, and covered up with weeds and grass and brush and trees all around it. I mean, there was the deserted streets and pathways and trash that basically covered the stones that had been knocked down. So finally... Verse 1, we get introduced to Nehemiah, the great leader that God is about to use My, Look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalakali. Hakalikali. Hakka. Now, we don't know any much more about this guy, about his dad, Hakalalia, only that he had a funny name. But But this is the only place he's mentioned in Scripture. But he goes on. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is mid-November to mid-December, In the 20th year, that is of King Artaxerxes' reign, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that would be like the capital of of the country, it would be like Washington, D.C., verse 2, that Hannah and I, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who were left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. You now, it's been said that a true Jew never forgets Jerusalem. And this was certainly true of Nehemiah. He wanted to know the condition of the city and those that were still there. But the report was not a good one. That word for distress there uh, in, in verse 3 in, in Hebrew can be translated misery or calamity. So these people, they're in a, in a vulnerable position. In fact, verse 3 also says that they were under reproach, meaning sharp, cutting, and piercing. In other words, the Jews were being criticized, slandered by the people who were enemies of their faith. But that really was just the result of the real problem that was going on. See, the real problem was that the Jews were apathetic towards rebuilding the walls of the city. If the walls would have been built, then the Jews wouldn't have been criticized, and they wouldn't have been slandered by the people who were the enemies of the faith. I think the same thing can be true in our lives. Perhaps Christians wouldn't be slandered and slandered so much if we didn't give people reason to slam and slander us. You know, the world says, Oh, and you call yourself a Christian. Why? Because they recognize something in you or something in me that I said that wasn't Christ-like. They recognize it even though they don't know Christ. They know about Him. And they say, Well, what I know about Christ, you certainly don't remind me of Christ by the things you're doing or the way you're acting or the things you're saying. I think of, of David after he sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan came to him and confronted him with his sin. And Nathan said in 2 Samuel twelve fourteen, 14, uh, Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So we don't want to be doing anything that would cause others to look at our lives and say, You call yourself a Christian. Well, again, the Jews were being mocked and slandered by the people because they didn't have a wall. Now, this was a wall was a big deal back then. A wall was very important. So Nehemiah is going to get this wall rebuilt and have Mexico pay for it. And so, um, okay. I had to throw that in there. I'm sorry. We're talking about a wall, okay. Let me say this. The wall in the Old Testament time was very important to a nation. If you had a a, a kingdom, you had walls surrounding your kingdom. Now, those walls were a reflection of the God that you serve, because if you serve a powerful God, then those walls are going to be huge, and they're going to be phenomenally strong and and heavy-duty. Well, now we have Jehovah, the one and true God, and the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Man, they look like they need some help. And here the enemies of Israel are going, Hey, does your God need some help? You know, the walls certainly look like they need some help. Your God must need help. But it was caused by the first place by apathy. People not really wanting to get involved, not really wanting to help, not really wanting to get the job done. It's interesting to me that God describes our lives as walls. Over in Isaiah 49, verse 15 and 16, we read, Can a woman forget her nursing child... And not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God was saying, your your lives are like walls to me, continually before me. I've inscribed your life on my hands. You see, what the walls were to Jerusalem, our lives are before God. And I think more often than not, our lives can lie in ruin because of neglect, neglect of the spiritual things that God wants to accomplish in our lives. And the leader who comes to rebuild the walls is the Holy Spirit. And it's he who continues that reconstruction work in each one of us. In other words, he does his best to bring to our attention the condition of our walls. But sometimes we don't like what we're hearing. We don't like what he's saying. Not that we can't hear, but we don't listen. And as a result, our lives can lie in ruins. But it all begins very slowly. Maybe it's a loose stone here, you know, a little bit of mortar cracking over here. Maybe the crack appears in this wall and then it's just kind of broken to pieces. Upon further, you know, neglect, the weeds of carnality seep into our lives and it begins to grow and and the enemy gains more and more access to your life. You may even be known as a good Christian, but you know in your heart that although you're a Christian in the same way as Jerusalem, Jerusalem belongs to the Jews, the walls around your spiritual life that protect and defend you, it lies in shambles. Things like, like selfishness and lack of discipline and procrastination and immorality and no time for God and compromise and rebellion have sowed weeds into your life. You see, we see a parallel in our lives with Nehemiah's situation. We need to take seriously the inventory of our true condition. Maybe your walls are good. Man, it's still never a bad thing to examine from time to time to see. Is there a crack over there? Is someone the enemy trying to get in over here? I need to sharp the walls over here. Now, Nehemiah's situation was even more difficult because the only people who were available for the work to reconstruct the walls were the same people who gave up years earlier. So he's got to try and inspire these guys that said, man, it's too hard, we quit, we're not going to do that. Was it a difficult task? Absolutely. (laughs) Impossible. But Nehemiah so planned the work and motivated the frustrated, disheartened people that the task was completed in 52 days how did he do it? Well, his testimony is that it was accomplished by God working through him and, and others assisting in the work. Two, Nehemiah had, had the skills of a great leader, but even more important it was his deep dependence upon God. And, and this is what we're going to see as we go through Nehemiah. You see, we're not born great leaders, but we are born with an emptiness that only can be filled by God. That's why our need and dependence needs to be on Him. And that's what we'll see right away with, with Nehemiah when he hears that the walls are broken down Look what he does immediately in verse four. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, he immediately turns to the Lord right away. We read, When I heard these words, in other words, we said Nehemiah listened. He wasn't so preoccupied that he that he couldn't hear. He knew in order to solve problems, you have to be under, to understand the problem, hear what the other person is saying, and then be available to respond to the problem. I like the Charlie Brown comic strip where Lucy had her psychiatric stand and Snoopy comes and he sits on the, on the patient's stool, but, but he says nothing. And in frustra- frustration, Lucy gets up and says, well, what can you do when the patient won't say anything? And I think sometimes that's how our preoccupation is with things that, 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 keeps us from truly seeing the needs in other people's lives. Have you met people that they're, they're so preoccupied that you can't even get through to them? I think for us as husbands, you know, uh, you know we can be preoccupied with our jobs or, or our wives preoccupied with your kids. And maybe for your wives you find, you know, you, you, your husband have a problem, you know, problem with preoccupation. I mean, trying to get his attention can be a little difficult, not an easy task. Honey, I mean, we need to talk about something that happened today. That's nice, dear. You know, okay. It's leaking. Okay, honey, I'll get to it. It's all the way down the hallway. All right, that's fine. It's really remarkable. I'm speaking about myself as well, that 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 as men, you know, we, we often have these high levels of responsibilities, but when it comes to dealing with some something at the problem level, sometimes we're just not aware of how bad things really are. We're oblivious. I think the opposite can be true as well. A person may be so problem-oriented that it's all he thinks about, this problem or that problem, that's not a good situation either. But but a person like Nehemiah, he had a clear awareness of the needs. He, he listened He when he heard this. Are you aware of the needs maybe in your own home or in your family? Are you sensitive to, to the needs of your kids or maybe your parents or spouses? Men, especially dads, there are times when you know that there's Something wrong going on in the house, but, but you haven't taken the step to correct it or be involved. Maybe kind of grab the attitude, well, if I just leave it alone, it'll fix itself. Listen, God has appointed us as fathers uh, to be the, you know, the, the overseers in our, in our home. And, and, and I know it's one of the most difficult leadership positions in the entire world to lead his home, but, but uh, uh, we need to do it. To teach our children spiritually what the Bible says. To teach them in the ways of the Lord. I think it's tragic when, when, you know, people, oh, I'll just bring the kid to church and and that, they'll get their spiritual thing from church and they don't do nothing with the rest of the week. It was Chuck Swindoll who said this, the church can't resurrect what the home puts to death. And I thought that was interesting. Well, Nehemiah, here's the problem. Immediately we read, we, immediately we read him say, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Alan Redpath once wrote this, Let us learn the lessons from Nehemiah. You never lighten the load unless first you have felt the pressure in your own soul. You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. So Nehemiah sees these things and and right away he begins to fast and he begins to pray. You know, fasting means just to deny yourself in order to to focus on the Lord. It's not just, hey, I missed a meal, I fasted today because I needed the cleansing or dieting. If you're going to miss a meal, then take that opportunity that you normally spend eating and instead be reading your Bible and praying. We see Nehemiah right off the bat as a man of prayer. And the first thing he he does is, is he goes to the Lord with his problem. I think most people, myself included, like oh, okay, how can I solve this problem? What do I need to do? Okay, the walls are down, these people are okay. I may I need to get a committee together, I need to do this, I may maybe need to talk to these guys. Not Nehemiah. You know, he goes right to prayer. Let's look at his prayer. Now look at verse five. He begins. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, our great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those you love and observe your commandments. See, Nehemiah immediately falls to his knees and and he prays to the Lord God of heaven. Now, he prays to God. That might seem obvious, but I have to say, some people when they pray, you have to wonder who they're praying to. You know, who, who are they praying with? I mean, you know, they seem to be praying to the people who are with them listening to their prayer. But in any case, Nehemiah, he has a clear picture of the character of God. He turns to the Lord in prayer and the first thing he does is he acknowledges God's greatness. He acknowledges God's power. He prays, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. It's the same thing Jesus t- taught us when, when He taught us the Lord's prayer. You know? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you are uh, in heaven. Your holy is your name. See, when we go to God in prayer, as we proclaim His greatness, as we proclaim His, his grace, His love, His power, our perspective changes. Our problems take on a whole new light, a whole new dimension, a lot of who God really is. It makes our, our problems small when we see how big our God is and how great He is. Well, next in Nehemiah's prayer, he confesses that he's a part of the problem. Look at verses 6 and 7. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Notice the words we and I. Nehemiah didn't go, okay Lord, these guys, they've really blown it. They've really messed up. You need to nail them. They didn't, know. He said, "I, we." Nehemiah specifically confessed his part in the problem. I think so often we we'll, go, "Well, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault." We may mention the word "I," but it's not used in the same context. I didn't do it. I'm, I'm not to blame. But but uh, and and we usually have at least six or seven reasons why it's the other person's fault. But but it's just our fallen nature. But yet Nehemiah he takes responsibility for the problem. He says, "Lord, I'm at fault here." I'm a part of this problem. Lord, I repent of the wrongs that I have done. And here's why. When you acknowledge God's holiness, when you acknowledge how great God is and how powerful He is, uh, then you're put in proper perspective of who you are and, and where you're really at with the Lord. Now you might think, well, how was Nehemiah part of the problem? Did Nehemiah He didn't start the walls and then quit. He didn't commit some sin or crime to bring down the wrath of God. But you see, Nehemiah is identifying with the people. And more so, he's dwelling on the character of God, and he realizes his own sinful condition. Here's my point. Before you can build the walls of others, you must build your own personal walls. What I mean by that is that Nehemiah first recognizes that in his heart, it was failing before God. And it deeply moved him. So he acknowledges how great God is and how weak he is. He goes to the Lord in prayer and in humility, seeking the Lord. It's those types of prayers that the Lord is more than willing to answer. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So Nehemiah, he's burdened, he wept, he fasted, he prayed, he humbled himself, he confessed his sin. Then he continues, look at verse 8. He says, Remember, I pray the that you commanded, your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest point of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What is Nehemiah doing here? He's quoting Scripture to God. He's quoting God's word back to God. He not only quotes Leviticus 26, but also Deuteronomy 30. Now, it wasn't because God didn't know what he wrote. Oh, I didn't know I wrote that. Oh, you're right. You know, I, what, what was I thinking? No, but more is because, in a sense, Nehemiah was holding on to what God had promised, what God had wrote. And what did God promise? It was a twofold promise. The first part of the promise was if that Israel disobeyed, they, they would be brought into captivity into a foreign land. That happened exactly the way we, we looked at, at it already. The second part of the promise was that once the captivity was ended, that God would bring the Jews back into their land and protect them. That hadn't happened yet. So Nehemiah is saying, Lord, the first part has come to pass. We disobeyed. We were brought into captivity. But, Lord, you promised that your word that you, you bring us back and that you protect us. That hasn't happened yet. So I'm claiming that it, it, that it will. I wrote this in Romans 4, 20 and 21 of Abraham. He did not waver the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he was what he had promised, he would also was able to perform. See, God doesn't give out promises that he doesn't plan to keep. Nor does he make promises lightly. The Lord Jesus says, give me your burden and I will bear it. Give me your humble repentance and I will honor it. Confess your sin and I will forgive it. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then he will add all these other things to you. If you make your heart right before me, he says, I will lead you into the path of stability and prosperity. That doesn't mean he'll, he'll supernaturally fill your wallet with, with money, but he'll but give you peace. Peace in a way that, that the world is not able to know. So Nehemiah is saying, Lord, you promised that your people would be protected in that city and that's a promise I want to claim. Now before we get on a big name it and claim it, blab it and grab it roll, remember we need to seek to apply all of God's promises to our lives, including the ones that we don't necessarily like. Like the promise that God gives when all those who live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I don't like that one. There needs to be a balance when it comes to claiming God's promises. Well now finally, in Nehemiah's prayer, he comes to the petition part. And really, again, that's how Jesus modeled his prayer. Look at the Lord's prayer. Look at Nehemiah's prayer. We see it. The petitions come last. Look at verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servant, who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, we'll get into this next week, but he, he's praying right now that when he talks to King Artaxerxes that he's going to have a good relationship there. But he says, basically, you know, he's saying, you know, you know, let your servant prosper. He says, your servant prosper this day, I pray. Now, that's not the prosperity doctrine that we hear about today that Nehemiah is praying. It, you know, it's, it, it, Lord, let me find that place that is in the center of your will where heavenly prosperity is, where I prosper in the things that you want me to prosper in, whatever that may be. See, Nehemiah not only recognizes the need, he's willing to involve himself in that. I mean, is that the way you pray when you see need in your family or your church or in your community or in your country? You know, a genuine leader is, you know, marked by by availability and, and, and available faithfulness in the midst of a task. You know, like Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me, use me. Yes, leaders need to be willing to leave, but they also need to, to be able to, to get their hands dirty and, and do what the Lord has. And Nehemiah was willing to leave the life of luxury in Persia for one of hardship in Jerusalem. And, and he knew he'd have to ask release from his present employment and that might be dangerous. But as we'll see next time, if God be us, who can be against us? Or maybe you've been burdened for a certain situation, burdened for a certain area, burdened for a certain group of people, Listen, God may be burning you, your heart to stir you into action. As I said earlier, we're getting ready to make some big decisions about building. And, and, and before we do anything, we need to bring it to the Lord in prayer and, and fasting. As I said already, God has laid it on the elders' hearts so that we need to be praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. And, and, and you know, maybe God has laid something else in your heart, something apart from, from a building thing, maybe something that, that you're seeking for the Lord. Maybe it's a person's salvation. You know, start by, by praying and fasting for that. And we're praying for people that don't know the Lord, you know. And I'm not just saying oh, all of you, may i just pray for all the people that don't know the Lord, you know. No, but get your mind on someone. Maybe the Lord would lay someone in your heart. Someone that may be a member of your family that you haven't thought about in that way. But God has touched your heart in such a way to start praying for them, fasting for them. See, we need to see the world as... The, as The Lord sees it as a sheep without a shepherd, as lost people that need to hear the gospel. I think sometimes we can get angry with sin, but also with sinners and actually begin to see non-believers as the enemy. But the Bible describes them as people have been blinded by the God of this world and we're to pray that God would open their eyes and we need to recognize apart from the grace of God, there go you and I. My point is that Nehemiah begins with prayer. Whatever it is that's set before you, he begins with prayer. And anyone who is in any type of leadership must realize before any great work of God can be accomplished that must be bathed in prayer. And that note, I want to close with this. Four reasons why prayer is important. Number one, prayer makes me wait. See, I can't pray and work at the same time. I have to wait to act until I'm finished praying. So prayer forces me to lead the situation with God. Number two, secondly, prayer clears my vision. You know, we've had some Foggy mornings here in Springfield, and you can't see too far in front of you, but eventually it burns off, it gets warmer, the fog is lifted. Prayer does the same thing. When you first face a situation, it's kind of foggy, but eventually the prayer, through prayer, will burn off the fog, so you can see clearly as God leads in that situation. Number three, prayer quiets my heart. Prayer quiets my heart. You see, as hard as I try, I can't worry and pray at the same time. Oh God, you are so great and so awesome and so powerful and I don't know how you're going to do this, God. I don't know how this is going to work. You can't do the two things. See, prayer makes me quiet. It replaces anxiety with a calm spirit. It's been said when your knees don't... your knees don't knock when you're kneeling. Finally, number four, prayer activates my faith. Prayer activates my faith. Kind of like dropping an Alka-Seltzer in water. Once it hits the water, it starts to bubble. Prayers like that. After I, I prayed... I'm I'm prone more to trust God. See, prayer sets our faith on fire. Now, the opposite of those things are true when we don't pray. When we don't pray, we become negative and we become critical and we we shrink God down to the size that He's unable to do anything about any situation and we try to accomplish then in our own strength and that just ends in disaster. Instead, we need to let God be God and go to Him for everything in prayer. The Lord delights in, in accomplishing what we can't pull off. You know that? But he waits for our cry and he listens for our call for our help. Prayer was the first major step that Nehemiah took in his journey to effective leadership. He was quick to call for help and uh, we'll see that his favorite position when he was faced with problems was the kneeling position. That's probably why he's knee high, Maya. <laughs> May the Lord help us to become better prayer warriors as well. Next week is our prayer, praise, and communion. And so I would encourage you guys, based off of what we studied this evening, let's spend next Wednesday in prayer, just in prayer and and asking the Lord to move mightily and uh, and maybe take a day this week and and just say, Lord, I'm going to fast my lunch. And instead of eating lunch, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to seek you, Lord. See what the Lord will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for uh, just this quick overview of Nehemiah's life, Lord. I'm excited to see all that you have in store for us as we study this great book, Lord. But we know that everything begins and ends with prayer, Lord. It's seeking your faith, seeking your will, seeking you to work in a way that you will accomplish things that will just blow our minds. And Lord, we recognize as Nehemiah prayed, you are great, you are mighty, you are a powerful God. We ask you to move in powerful ways in this church, in this fellowship, in our lives individually, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, to to live for you, that we wouldn't give those in this world an opportunity to, to blaspheme you through our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open up opportunities, Lord, for us to be used by you to reach people that don't know you. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor for this time together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.